14 artists will be given a unique opportunity to show their talent to America and the top players in the art world. I'm your host and judge, China Chow, and this is Work of Art, the next great artist. One artist will emerge from the pack to take the grand Hello and welcome to the Planet Money Art Gallery. Walk around, pour yourself some wine in one of those little plastic cups. Enjoy the art. You know, these pieces are really speaking to me, David. <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, we will explain what we're talking about in a second. Today is Friday, June 25th. At the top, you heard a clip from the new Bravo show, Work of Art, where artists compete reality TV show style. Today, we're going to try and figure out the answer to the question that no artist likes to discuss. Price. That wonderful thing you just created out of thin air that you poured your creative soul into, how much for it? (laughs) But first, our Planet Money indicator from our blogger, Jacob Goldstein. Big news today, Jacob, huh? Yeah, it is, it is big news. It looks like Congress has finally put the finishing touches on, on the big finance reform bill we've been following. Uh, the conference committee pulled an all-nighter last night, voted early this morning, and there were some, some important and interesting last-minute changes. And one of those you translated into an indicator for us? I did indeed. Today's indicator is $19 billion. That's the size of a tax that was added to the bill at the last minute. It'll apply to big banks and big hedge funds. They'll have to pay it out over 10 years, and it's supposed to cover the cost of implementing the bill. The Congressional Budget Office did this study about the reform bill, and they found that if it's implemented, it'll bring in certain revenue to the government, but it will also trigger new government spending. And on balance, the CBO estimated it would have a net cost to the government of $19 billion over 10 years. So Democrats in Congress decided last night, apparently, let's just pass that cost on to the banks. Right. So we got this new tax or new fee for those politicians who don't want to say tax. And there are also a couple of other pretty important last minute changes to the bill. And actually, sorting through this this morning is sort of confusing. I've seen some headlines that say victory for Wall Street and then others that say it's actually worse for Wall Street than anyone was expecting. It's hard to sort of figure out. Yeah, I I think that partly has to do with with what time frame you're thinking of, right? So over the last six months or year or so, the bill has gotten tougher uh, on the banks, which is pretty rare. You know, usually you have a bill introduced and then the special interests get to work and it it gets weaker. That didn't happen this time. On the other hand, a few of the last minute changes that emerged last night and this morning did give Wall Street banks some of what they wanted. Uh, So exhibit one there is derivatives. The Senate bill would have forced banks to totally split off their derivatives business into separate units. But there's this last minute deal, and it means that they're now going to be able to keep a big chunk of their derivatives business and not have to spit it off. The second last minute change, the Volcker rule. That's this rule that we've talked about on the podcast before, named after former Fed chairman Paul Volcker, which says banks can't do what's called proprietary trading. In other words, making speculative bets with the bank's money. The final version that was passed at a conference last night does ban proprietary trading in banks, but it does allow banks to make speculative investments. The bill says they can invest up to 3% of their capital in hedge funds and private equity funds. You know, it's interesting to, to look at the scope of this this morning. There's definitely more and more details are becoming clear. 
but at the same time, I talked this morning with, with Lawrence Kaplan. He's a, a lawyer in D.C. who works on this stuff. And he made the point that there are still a lot of really important details that are actually being left to, to regulators, which is appropriate and typical. But, it, but it's a good reminder that even you know when Congress, as is likely, passes the bill and the president signs it, we still won't know all the details. And in fact, it will take years for these rules to be phased in, to take effect. And it'll be really a long time before we, we fully understand how this is going to work. And what exactly we've done, <laughs> because right. many of these rules might have unintended consequences that people can't, can't see right now. And that's what a lot of opponents of the bill are worried about. Uh, almost certainly. Jacob, can I actually ask a question? So a lot of these restrictions, like the Volcker rule, that applies, I think, because some of these big investment banks converted to bank holding companies. Can they unconvert and then they're not covered by these new rules? Uh, funny you should ask. Uh, I actually asked exactly that question to Lawrence Kaplan. Yeah. And at least as of this morning, you know, we're tracking this a little bit before noon on Friday. As of this morning, when I talked to him, that was still unclear. There was earlier, uh, and this is months ago, in the discussions over the bill, this thing called the Hotel California provision. You know, you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. That said, so, you know, like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley basically became banks, right? right? That allowed them access to the Fed's discount window. Which saved their bacon. Which arguably saved their bacon. But it also means that a lot of these new restrictions apply to them, right? So it would be natural if you're Goldman to say, you know what? We don't want to be a bank anymore. We're, we're going to get out of this so we can keep doing prop trading. And it's still unclear whether they'll be allowed to do that. Uh, Kaplan used the phrase lightning rod. He basically said, it's unclear if the bill's going to say you can't do this. If it does say you can't do this, it's likely that some of the banks will sue. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks, guys. All right, Dave. Yeah. From the art of politics to the art of, well, art. <laughs> we have an art indicator to get us started as well. $12 million. That is how much a 15-foot shark in formaldehyde by artist Damien Hirst reportedly sold for in 2005. The title, which I love, is The Physical Impossibility of Death in the Mind of Someone Living. The title is worth $12 million alone. <laughs> exactly. I have a smaller indicator, uh, $1.5 million. That is how much Eddie Saunders tried to sell his shark for. Eddie Saunders owned an electrical shop and said he had a shark hanging in his shop before Hearst did his shark thing. And so Saunders ran an ad saying, New Year's sale, only 1 million British pounds. Save 5 million pounds on the Damien Hearst copy. Nobody bought his shark. Um, that anecdote, by the way, comes from a book I've been reading called The $12 Million Stuffed Shark About the Art Business. And, and that anecdote is sort of encapsulates what our podcast is about today. Why does one guy's stuffed shark sell for $12 million and another guy basically can't even sell his stuffed shark? Alex, let's start with a sound. I'm going to play you a sound. Tell me if you can guess what it is. Identified. I can barely hear it. <laughs> Come on, listen. It's an empty room. It sounds like an empty room. That's the sound of the Winkleman Art Gallery on 27th Street in <sighs> How Chelsea. How did I not know that? Yeah. it's uh, It looks like an art gallery. You know, big empty room, white walls, uh, photographs hung about eight feet apart or something like that. Um, and I wanted to start the discussion here because just this week, this is unconnected with the gallery, but an Ansel Adams photograph of Yosemite National Park sold for $772,000. And when I visited the Winkleman Gallery, on the wall were photographs by this guy, Matthew Albanese, that looked just as dramatic. One was of this huge, ominous tornado churning across a field. Another one was of a glacier in Antarctica. Another one was of a volcano. 
except that Ed Winkleman, the guy who runs the gallery, said, it's not a tornado, that's not Antarctica, and that's not a volcano. He builds these models out of everyday materials in his studio. So, for example, what looks like a tornado is actually still wool. What looks like an iceberg is all made out of sugar. What looks like the volcano is uh, tiling grout. That's pretty great. Wait, let me look. Let me look closer at the tornado. Foreground looks like grass and bushes is all made out of parsley, and they're very convincing. Alex, here, look. This is a. Oh, really? Yeah, I totally want to see these. That's the iceberg made of sugar. Oh, my God. (laughs) It looks exactly like an iceberg. That's amazing. Wow. Apparently, it's all in, like, the lighting. He sets these things up, and there are all these photos where you can see him working on them in his studio. They're like little dioramas, but it's all all about the lighting, I think. Yeah, and we'll link to the the photos of these on our blog, npr.org slash money. But, Dave, I have a... You have an ugly question. I have an ugly question. Yeah. How much is that going to run me? Uh, it's $2,480 frame included. It's cheaper than Ansel Adams. And look, he probably put a lot more work into it. Yeah, that's true. But Ansel Adams is taking pictures of real stuff. <laughs> yeah, but so this guy had to make the iceberg and then take a photograph of it. That's so much harder. Yeah, but it's not a real iceberg. All right. So it's a hard question. What should this photograph cost? I asked Ed Winkleman. Can we talk about price? Yes. My question is harder than that. It's how do you decide what price tag to put on something? Okay. So there really is a system. Don't you love it? There's a system. I love it. I can't imagine that the artists in Ed Winkleman's gallery like the fact that there's a system for pricing their art. No, he says, so he works with emerging artists, not Ansel Adams, people, you know, who aren't famous yet. And um, he says that there's always this awkward moment, you know, he'll have some new artist really, really likes their work. And you're maybe sitting there in front of their paintings, and then you got to put a price tag on it. And the, the formula, it has very little to do with how good the art is. Okay, so it depends on the scale. The size, you mean? Yes. Like bigger costs more? Yes. <laughs> what if it's small and super detailed and beautiful? Well, the scale is one aspect. <laughs> yeah, so there's like three criteria. Scale, what I would consider intensity... As you said, if it's very small and super detailed, it took a lot more time. So scale, intensity, the third criteria is what he calls medium. In other words, what's it made of? Is the sculpture carved out of wood? Is it made of marble? And and how many copies are there? If it's a photograph and you have multiple editions of it, it's going to be less expensive. Oil paintings in general are known to be about twice as expensive per square inch over the same artist's drawings. Really? Yes. All right. So what I'm learning is if I'm an emerging artist, I want to do big oil paintings and not tiny charcoal drawings. Yeah. Really, 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 really big. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he says at the end of the day, the artist decides, but this this is, you know, you can go around to galleries and they're all sort of priced similarly. Yeah. And he also told you that there's actually a minimum price as well. Yeah, there's right? sort of a minimum because, he, you know, as a gallery owner, he's got his own costs, right? He's got his rent. He's got his employees. He's got the wine that they serve at the opening, and he's got to make all that back. So, so what is the cheapest possible painting you can buy in New York? I don't know. In, in a nice neighborhood, you know, they're going to run over 1000 bucks, right? $1, you know, it's not like, you know, in a clothing store, you got tons of clothing, you got jeans <laughs> stacked up to the ceiling. Here, it's just like one piece of art, and then like 10 feet, another piece of art, you know, so they're not going to be cheap. All right. Well, that that explains the prices of sort of artists that are, I guess, not well-known or, or emerging, but it doesn't answer the question... The shark question? 
the shark question. Why does a shark in formaldehyde cost $12 million? Because it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yeah. So what we've talked about now is prices for, for emerging artists where the art really is like a commodity. But after that, you know, if people start buying your art, then it's like there are a different set of economic rules that kick in. And to talk about this, I went downtown to meet with William Balmol. He's an economist at NYU. He's 88 years old, but still writing. I'm in competition with Methuselah these days. Uh, Most people my age have uh, laid down their pens. However, I do remember having once attended a lecture by the noted economist A.C. Pigou, and he got up and he said, you have to realize that I am best described as an ancient squid who still continues to eject squirts of ink. And uh, I feel I qualify under that description. (laughs) (laughs) Well, William Baumol, you certainly won my heart. So one of the things Baumol has studied over the years is the economics of art. He's actually an artist himself. He used to teach sculpture. There are paintings that he's done around his office. And he occasionally actually sells one to a colleague for a few hundred bucks. But Baumol is famous on this topic for a paper he wrote called Unnatural Value or Art Investment as Floating Crap Game. <laughs> right. We got a lot of good titles in this in this podcast. Um, so we have a copy of that paper here. It's from 1985. And it's a scan of the original paper. So it's a scan of a printout from 1985. It's on dot matrix printer paper. Um, bringing back memories. I love it. Like the uh, the O's are kind of squared off and the underlining is just an underline under each letter. It's not like a long, smooth line. <laughs> Younger listeners have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> All right. So we'll get to the art investment part in a second. Um, but what Balmol says in that paper is that in some ways, it's no mystery what determines the price of art. Art's like everything else. It's supply and demand. If you're famous and you've got a line of people waiting to buy your next painting, you can charge more for that one. Or if you've got some rich guy who really wants to buy a formaldehyde shark bidding against some other rich guy who also wants the shark, you know, the price goes up to $12 million. He says what makes art different from a commodity like, you know, oil or ball bearings or rice uh, and even different from things like stocks or bonds is that with those things, you can try to calculate the price. But with art, good luck. They depend in swings in human tastes. And I am absolutely convinced that there is nothing about human tastes that can be called, quotes, rational. Well, I mean, except everybody knows blue is better than red. (laughs) Alex, you used to like red better than blue. (laughs) I changed my mind. Yeah, see, that's his point. Art, Art depends purely on human taste. Here's something he wrote in the paper. Their prices float more or less aimlessly. (laughs) Well, but it's not aimless. I mean, there is, I mean, just like there's fundamentals for stocks and bonds, you could argue there are fundamentals for art. The fundamentals are just basically what the art critics think about their art. (laughs) Instead of stock analysts. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Of art critics. Art analysts in Planet Money Jargon. Uh, So so speaking of the art analysts, as I'm going to continue to call them now, here's what one... uh, curator slash art analyst had to say about Damien Hirst's formaldehyde shark, quote, it's brutally honest and confrontational. He draws attention to the paranoiac denial of death that permeates our culture. And therefore definitely worth $12 million. Especially if you can sell it for more later. And and that is 
the thing you hear about a lot. You hear about record prices for art in the news. You know, there's a there's a Picasso that sold for over a hundred million, an Andy Warhol piece sold for seventy two million dollars recently at a Christie's auction, and so. You hear a lot of people talking about art as an investment. Yeah, Balmall says, uh, you know, people say that all the time. You should buy art the way they say you should buy real estate or whatever. You know, it holds its value. It's a good investment. And in fact, it's better than stocks and bonds. But he says that's wrong. And I can tell you as an economist just from theory, that should not be true. So here's his economic argument. Alex, I'm going to give you a choice. You can buy a painting or you can buy a bond. And in 10 years... They're both going to grow in value and be able to sell them for the exact same amount. Which would you pay more for? Well, I guess, is the bond pretty? (laughs) No, it's a little piece of paper. Is the painting pretty? The painting's really nice. And I could hang it on my wall? You could hang it on your wall. Um, I guess I would pay more for the painting because I could hang it on my wall in the 10 years that I'm going to be keeping it before I sell it back. Right. So at the end of 10 years, they're both going to be worth the same. And you've just told me you're willing to pay more for the painting, right? So that because makes it pretty. That, ma- that makes the painting a sort of crappy financial investment, right? You're paying more than you would for the bond, but you're getting the same amount back at the end, right? Or it makes the bond a crappy aesthetic investment. <laughs> All right, but financially speaking, <laughs> if you don't care about art, if you don't care about that. You're just thinking about like I got my retirement money. Where am I going to put it? You're better off always, he says, putting it in stocks and bonds than in art. At least in theory, that should that should be true. So he wanted to test that idea. It turns out it's sort of hard to test because you need a good data set of art sales. And that's when he found the book. The book by Reitlinger. So, read it. so we have it here. It's, a, it's called The Economies of Taste, The Rise and Fall of the Picture Market, 1760 through 1960 by Gerald Reitlinger. And it has pages and pages of data for works of art going back several centuries, data that were kept by the leading auction houses. So uh, so I'm looking at the book here. Rembrandt? Here's Rembrandt. All right, so Rembrandt. The painting is Old Man in a Black Hat. Bought by Lord Scarsdale in 1761 for 210 pounds. 1760. So Alex, he had a colleague type in all those numbers and statistically analyze them. Well, we found uh, exactly what had been predicted by the theory. By you. By me. Uh, It turns out that art was a good investment if it paid off in aesthetic benefit. But in terms of dollars, you were much better off buying stocks and bonds. Okay, so stocks and bonds are better than art. But, okay, what if you bought like a Monet in 1920? Yeah, I think he's talking about a portfolio of all art or something. Yeah, I mean, if, if you happen to buy an Impressionist piece during back in the day, sure, you know, you'd be rich now. But if you bought a David Roberts piece, you, you would not be rich. Who? Dave Roberts, we call we call him <laughs> we call him Dave. He was he was famous in the 1860s. So I found him on like page 300 or something of that book. Here's the quote that went along with that: In the heyday of mid-Victorian romantic taste, the watercolors of David Roberts depicting the Near East and Spain were the delight of kings. His fussy <laughs> his fussy oil paintings and interiors of churches could make close on two thousand pounds in the sales room, but 
1933, that's 70 years after his death, uh, one of them sold for just 10 guineas, which is almost nothing. So art analysts, i.e. art critics and curators, are about as accurate in the long term as stock analysts, it sounds like. That was a very good short-term investment, I would say. <laughs> right, exactly, but not not something you want to buy and hold. Dave Roberts, don't buy and hold. <laughs> he could he could have a resurgence. <laughs> I think after this podcast, there's going to be a resurgence, and they'll be selling for at least 15 guineas. So you're long Dave Roberts. <laughs> I'm long Dave Roberts. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see if you move markets like Jim Cramer does. Uh, I think that does it for us today. Uh, you can see a slideshow of the art we mentioned in the podcast with prices on the blog npr.org slash money as always let us know what you think what you want to hear you can email us planetmoney at npr.org I'm David Kestenbaum I'm Alex Bloomberg thank you for listening oh, 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 clap your hands.